This is Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast that discusses common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Matt Miller. And I'm Matt Henry. And today we're talking about the sin unto death. Yeah, in 1 John chapter 5. Yeah. So we're, we're frequently asked some questions about life, the Bible, theology. Um, and at first it can be somewhat intimidating, but as, as time begins to go on, you just realize that people are usually just asking a few questions over and over again. Yep. Um, and so you always get the same question inevitably by somebody um, that you've answered before. And so th- theology questions are usually very personal, like whether a person can lose their salvation or, um, you know, for example, what does it mean to be baptized by the Spirit? Um, but when it comes to the, 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 um, the Bible, the questions are usually about things like the unforgivable sin, not judging one another. Um, you know, what's the baptism for the dead, for instance. Um, and you know, another one is the sin not leading to death, right? which is what we're going to talk about today. Um, and so since we get these questions over and over again, we thought it'd be helpful to just put it in an episode form. So that way, next time someone asks episode 80, whatever this is, you can listen to it. And if they don't, then we don't, we know they don't really care. But also now everyone who, what, everyone who listens to the podcast, you know, this is something they can store away and, yeah. and, and use. So what is the sin unto death? It's out of first John chapter five, verses 16, 17. I'll read that. It says, if anyone sees his brother committing the sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will for him give life to those who commit sin, not leading to death. There is a a sin leading to death. I do not say that he should make requests for this. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. So, interesting passage and very scary for a lot of people. They're like, whoa, whoa, what is that? And it's usually like the unforgivable sin. Either they're afraid they committed it, (laughs) or they're like, I don't want to commit it. Um, So, can you tell me what it is? So it's an incredibly hard passage, though. Uh, first of all, we're going to just admit that straight up. And I, I'm not certain there's a single commentary I ever consulted back when I was teaching through First John that didn't acknowledge in one way or another. It's a, it's a challenge. Uh, but what we're going to do is kind of model for you tonight um, what we do as pastors when we're approaching passages, especially when we get them sprung on us at, in a question form. And we open it up. If we have not thoroughly studied it through, all we're going to begin to do is we ask questions and and we look at those questions or look at the text for the answer. And as we answer it, it begins to take us down a certain path. So we're going to ask some questions and answer them. And because of how we answer it, it, it necessarily leads us to the conclusion that we ultimately are at. So we don't conclude and enforce it. Right. But rather, we're trying to derive it from an inductive way of we're looking at the passage, asking questions of it, and then as it leads us, we then begin to form our conclusions. So, we have the very first question. Yeah. So the 
the first thing to do is notice the phrase where it says his brother. Um, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, um, not leading to death. So the question is, is what is in, intended here? What does this mean by when he says his brother? Well, you have four options. Um, <laughs> um, you have a literal brother, so your blood brother. Um, you have a genuine believer. That's what could be meant by brother. You have brother in the general sense of a neighbor. Um, and then fourthly, you have a professing believer who may or may not be truly saved. Right. So those, those are your four options. Um, now, right away, you may see how by asking the questions of the passage, it really helps you now to at least begin to slow down and then think, um, you know, what and who is in view here in this text. Well, that's because the first thing everyone's thinking about and then they can't get out from it is a sin unto death. And it's like, you know, there's other words in that verse. Right. So, yeah. so yeah, yeah, it slows you down, kind of calms you down, lets you begin to work it through. Yeah. Um, so we'll just give it to you. We think the fourth view here is the best. And and why is that the case? Well, first of all, throughout the epistle of 1 John, the term brother is used in this way. Yeah. Again, it's it's this idea of a professing believer who may or may not be truly saved. And so he, this is just good exegesis too. Um, when you understand how John is using a term, for instance, you should carry that all the way through. Um, or at least be not quick to abandon that when you get to a text that's using that same term or something. Yeah, you've got to have really strong contextual evidence. For why it should be different. Yeah, that he all right. of a sudden magically decides to make a completely different meaning in this one place. Right. So just some examples, First John 2, 9 through 11, it says, the one who says that he is in the light and yet hates his brother is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going. Why? Because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now note that the whole context there of first John two is that to abide in the light is to be a true believer. So if you have brothers in the light, in some sense, it's speaking of a believer. But if you have a brother, who walks in darkness, right. then he's not really a brother. Exactly. He's just a professing brother. Yeah. You also see it again in 1 John 3, verse 10. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. Um, and then 1 John 4, 20 through 21. If someone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. That's a little harsh though, he's a liar. Well, I know he could show a little more grace. Yeah, yeah, he carries the Imago Dei. It's <laughs> <laughs> truth and love. Okay, um, so, so this is, when you start working through texts like, or passages like that, it's already beginning to help you understand, um, you know, the passage and, um, notice that we haven't even dealt with the words that cause people so much wonder and worry. Again, sin unto death. We're just dealing with this first term here. Um, so we're, we're quite confident that John is dealing with a specific issue of a professing believer, and that's key. Um, he's a professing believer who may or may not actually be a believer. Right. So then the next question that we would want to ask um, is what is meant by committing 
a sin. Now, that might seem obvious, but it actually isn't. Uh, literally, it would be translated sinning a sin. Uh, and then, again, this is uh, actually helpful because we're beginning to focus on the sin itself, and we learn a few things. First of all, that it's not an occasional sin. It's not like you did a sin, accidentally right. committed it somehow, but it's a, spe- a specific type of sin, and it's not even identifying that specific sin as much as it's emphasizing the quality of the action. So it's not committing the sin. It's com- sinning the sin, uh, sinning sin that leads right. to death. Yeah. How's that? There's not even a in there. It's not yeah. sinning us, sin. it's just sinning sin yeah it it, it doesn't have uh, it, it it's it's well let's put it this way it's in a continuous action and it's dealing with this habitual process of sinning that's right. the point of emphasis and so now we can begin to see that it is dealing with the professing believer who is now in the habit of committing sin now john's already actually dealt with this numerous times in this book so that also is helpful um that's that's his norm this man or woman who professes christ is actually habitually consistently in the process of living sin that's what defines them that's right. the state of their right. existence and so pastorly we would call those people a lot of times the ones who claim they're struggling with a sin right what they what when you understand what most people mean when they say they're struggling is that i keep doing it and i probably don't have any serious plans to stop doing it um but i i want to profess christ so i'm going to say i'm struggling with it um and and so i i say that not to be unkind but to in a sense perhaps create a little bit of fear in people who treat their sin in a casual way and the, and then just spiritualize it at the latest prayer meeting or small group gathering. Yeah, right, right. Um, so now we can ask the question, what is meant by leading to death? Um, now here, it is helpful now to even break that down into some detail. Right. Um, so leading, um, you know, what, what does this mean? Well, it gives the reader the sense of the verb or at, at least the participle, but this is not what is actually there. Um, the word's actually, a, it's a preposition, um, a spatial term. It's the preposition pros, which means near or toward. Um, and so th- it's key to understand that because it's not saying that the goal, um, here being death, leading to death, um, is actually given, but that it, it's potential. Right. Um, it's, it's toward death. It's in that direction, right. in other words. Um, it, it will, ult- in other words, it's ultimately going to end in death when it's just left alone. Which is un- why the translators put in. Leaving. Yeah, yeah. leading. Yeah. Um, and then you have death. Um, so what, what's meant by this? Well, obviously this is central to the, <laughs> to the meaning. And so we, we wanna be careful and, and note what it is, what it is and what it is, what, it, what, what is and what is not there in the text. So it is contrasted with life so whatever the meaning is for death will in turn affect the term life as well, right. how you understand that term. Um, and there's really only two choices. You have either a physical death or it's speaking of a spiritual death, that eternal death, in other words. Um, it's probably easier if we were to consider the word life first. Um, in fact, it's used 13 times in First John and every, every other occurrence, it is in reference to eternal or spiritual life. Right. It's, never, it's never speaking of your physical life or your physical existence. Um, the closest 
two usages of that term are in chapter 5, verse 13, and then again in verse 20. And our passage is clearly within the context of those two passages. So whatever those are saying, it's going to help us understand what's meant right. in our passage. So the first one is 1 John 5, 13. Uh, it says, these things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Why? In order that you may know that you have eternal life. Very clearly, it's speaking of a spiritual life. Right. Um, and then again in chapter 5, verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding in order that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. So again, speaking of that spiritual aspect of life. So since the contrast is made now between life and death, and life is likely referring to that spiritual life, then the best conclusion or understanding of both terms appears to be in this spiritual category rather than a physical one. Right. Um, so, so we're probably not looking at a physical death you know, for instance, like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5. Right, or 1 Corinthians 11, where he says that because they take the Lord's Supper improperly, that some of them are asleep or yeah. meaning dead. Yeah. Right. Uh, but that's a common one that people think. They freak out and they're like, so is this yeah. something, he's just going to strike me dead? Yeah. And it's like, no, that's not even likely what's in view. Right. And And the natural conclusion, I mean, there's no such thing as a sin that doesn't lead to death. Yeah. Either. Um, so... You know, and here you're talking about it in terms of a, a spiritual sense, not physical. So what's what's another? Okay, so a couple of other really brief observations. Uh, one uh, is before we all tie it up is when it says ask, you know, we don't ask. It's a term that describes the asking from an inferior to his superior. Um, and, and this is why many translations say, ask God, even though the word God actually isn't there. Most likely it is referencing that we're asking God um, on behalf. So it does talk a bit about our intercessory uh, work of, of just seeking the face of God on, on situations. So yeah. what does all of this mean? Uh, we would say that it's obvious from the construction that the readers of John are, uh, were assumed to know what the term leading to death meant because he doesn't develop it. Right. Um, however, it's not as clear to us, and we want to admit that. So if you take a different view from us, that's fine, but just try to derive it exegetically from the text. And I'm losing my voice all of a sudden, so I'll let you pick it up. <laughs> sure. Um, well, there's there are at least six main views, at least uh, from a Protestant perspective. Um, now, add to that as well the Catholic perspective um, that you know they're going to pick this up and understand it to mean a reference to like mortal sins, yeah, and, as opposed to the venial, right? And you you can you know see the challenge there. There's just a lot of perspectives on this. Perhaps the most common Protestant view, though, is that it relates to the rejection of Jesus as the Christ, which would include the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Um, now, this is entirely possible, and certainly John speaks to the, the divinity and the person of Jesus in, in his letter and his epistle. And if, if this is the case, then you understand how defining the person of Jesus Christ is in all of this. Um, however, if it's emphasizing the character or quality of sinning more than the idea I, um, the identity of a specific sin. Yeah, so it's not interested in just trying to say this is the sin. It's really emphasizing the quality of that. Yeah, what characterizes right. that sin, in other words. Yeah. 
Um, therefore, the, this appears to be a person who professes to be a believer, but is in an unrepentant state of holding onto his sin. Right. Um, at the same time, verse 17 comes into play and seems then to emphasize that though all unrighteousness is sin, not all sin is equal. Um, the, the sinning that's in view here is such that it leads to this spiritual death. So it, again, it's of a different quality. Right. Um, so we should conclude that it is, that this is the choice, that, it, that this sin that leads to death is the idea of rejecting Jesus as he's actually revealed in the scripture, yet profess faith in him nonetheless. And this captures all of First John, again, where people are saying that he didn't come in the flesh, um, things where they're, or that he is not the Christ or whatever. And all of those different views of Jesus in the early, early church, um, it's not so much that you thought that, like if I was a young Christian and I thought maybe his resurrection was spiritual early on because somebody told me that and I'm, what do I know? But then you as my pastor correct me and show me that. Well, then if I'm truly in Christ, I begin to see that and I change and say, oh, wow, what was I thinking? But when I start stubbornly holding on to it, that's that idea of us having that unrepentant mm -hmm. heart where we're going to cling to our little novel view that's completely contrary to orthodoxy uh, and somehow think we're safe with that, this passage would serve as a warning. Right, right. Um, yeah, so it's it's not it's not embracing Jesus Christ to be who he said he was, right. that he has come in the flesh. And, and, and holding on to that. Right. Um, so it, it, again, it's, it's the idea of thinking that your theology is not important just believe, right. Be believe in Jesus, whatever that means to you, you know? Um, so again, it's, it's a severe warning that you have to get it right regarding who Jesus is. It's, it's not something up for debate or endless discussion. Um, he has been revealed to us in the scriptures and therefore he's revealed himself so that he can be rightly known and believed in. And that's why we react so strongly to the modern day preaching that is so vapid. It's, you know, he, Jesus is a therapy, uh, therapeutic uh, savior. He is there to meet your needs. He is your, he's everything. He's your homeboy. He's your buddy. He's everything but Lord mm -hmm. and and God. And and so again, you you've got to get Jesus right. Uh, there's non-negotiable. That that's on that heaven and hell literally hanging yeah. the balance. Yeah. So th this question came from somebody though, and their specific question was with regard to that piece about is the the death there speaking of a physical death or a spiritual death? Um, that was the question and we dealt with it, but just to once again, put it here in the end, it's, we hold to that it's speaking of a spiritual death because again, all through the letter, that seems consistent. Yeah. Um, so again, you're gonna have to have very strong exegetical support as to why all of a sudden it's different here from the rest of the letter. And it's also not thinking of a specific sin that you accidentally might have done and you're like, oh, um, it's describing the whole message of that a book that it's an errant view of Jesus and you're stubbornly holding on and it and 
there's just nothing for you at that point. There, you know, just like when you're going to assert that the power of Jesus is being done by demons rather than the Holy Spirit, which is blasphemy of the Spirit. He's like, there's nothing for you there. You can, you don't get to blaspheme God and then still say, but I'm in, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you don't. So, yeah. hope that's helpful. Yeah. So, let's give some uh, some conclusions on this. Um, again, this passage is this kind of passage is a challenge and. Um, that makes it a good passage to work through, um, even if the answer is not satisfying to everybody. Um, but there's a few lessons you can learn when studying a passage like this. You want to give? Yeah, the first would be that there are passages that simply are hard, and they're hard to understand. So when you have someone who handles them casually or flippantly, you should be wa- very wary of putting too much weight on what is said. So when somebody slams on the table their little card of some difficult passage, um, just see how well they're treating it. Yeah. Um, second, these types of passages are often what bring or can bring division in churches. And so we would just say, be cautious around them. Um, it's not something to camp on and, uh, you know, plant your flag and make this the centerpiece of your life and theology. Yeah. I remember in LA, we had a guy that used to get his followers and they would pick it outside our church along the sidewalk and his pet doctrine was out of Revelation 4 or 5, where it talks about uh, the seven spirits of, of God. And he, he argued that the Trinity therefore had to be false, that actually the Godhead was made up of nine persons. Um, he, he had actually been a member of the church, actually had gone to the seminary for a while. Uh, his pastoral ministry did not end well, nonetheless. But, you know, there's a guy who decides one passage in Revelation will now wipe away every other verse in the Bible. Mm-hmm. And it's like, that's not smart. Yeah. Um, you know, so understand that these sort of passages can become calls de sac for your spiritual growth as the answer is it's often hard or so subtle that you can't come to a satisfactory conclusion. So you just find yourself frozen. Yeah. So don't, don't freeze there. Don't stop on something. that's a difficult passage. Just set it aside, say, I'm not sure I understand it and move on and continue growing in Christ. And a lot of times these things resolve themselves. Uh, if, especially if you're in a solid church where they're, they're taking you through the text. Yeah. In fact, Paul reminds us in Ephesians four that, even as we're, we're growing with respect to our theology, uh, we're still commanded to maintain that unity that all believers have in the spirit. Um, you know, so don't, don't decide that your, your special theology um, or your theological drum that you're going to beat in, in your local church is somehow worth it. Um, you know, at best it's annoying <laughs> and can even be very destructive. Yes. Uh, Then third, in a similar way, you should never develop your theology on anything as these sort of passages, anything that is like these sorts of passages as your foundation, meaning these are not the kinds of passages doctrines are built off of. Um, A doctrine of salvation based off of this passage is likely going to be poor. Um, Perhaps you think you don't do this, but it's actually a lot more common than you might think. So here's a scenario. You you hear about the truth of forgiveness in the person and work of Jesus. You're burdened with sin. You're weak with faith in your faith. And with this, you have a lot of sorrow. 
But when you hear that in Jesus Christ, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God, you immediately insert this passage, and with it goes your hope. Uh, for all you can wonder is, maybe I committed that sin unto death. And so you won't even ask for prayer because verse 16 says not to bother. Right, right. And and so you can see right there, bam, you're, you're, you're devastated. And so you might claim that the death and resurrection of Jesus is foundational to you. You may even think that the promise that all who come to him in faith is saved or are saved. But in reality, this is a passage that is your real foundation. And as a result, you're frozen in fear and despair. And that's not a good thing. Yeah. Um, if if you're in a church where where theology is vague at best, um, it's a dangerous place to be. Um, the whole of of First John makes it clear that theology matters, and so you need to get certain things right, like the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So that those will be our thoughts. Yeah. On this passage, I hope I hope that it's helpful though, and puts a few people at ease that maybe struggled over it. Yeah. Um, well, next time we'll talk about something else. Don't know what yet. Well, we probably do, but yeah, not. we'll see. It'll be something else. <laughs> so until then, make sure to tune in, join the conversation. Let us know what you think about the sin that leads to death. And don't forget to like, share, comment, rate, and review. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And tell all your friends. <laughs>